I, it's it's worth pointing out, David, that you and Paul now share the uh, uh, distinction of having had to say, you know, uh, around midnight as you were thinking you were going to fall asleep, oh my God, what did I say on the Cyberlaw podcast that might come back to haunt me in later life? <laughs> Isn't it the truth? Episode 299 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we express here today do not reflect the opinions of our clients, our institutions, our families, spouses, offspring, or pets. Uh, um, I'm going to be interviewing uh, a, after this uh, Peter Swire uh, from the uh, from Georgia Tech. Uh, and uh, Maury Shank, who has, is well known to uh, listeners, uh, uh, on the impact of the Schrems decisions that uh, one of which has come through and the other is coming, uh, which are disastrous, whole below the waterline uh, attacks on U.S. intelligence collection uh, and um, uh, pretty much the entire U.S. tech sector. And uh, very few people are paying attention. So uh, listen to that. It's, it's uh, a really important um, interview. For the News Roundup, we've got David Chris, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the National Security Division at the Justice Department. Uh, David, welcome. Thank you. And Nate Jones, who's also a co-founder of Culper Partners and was formerly with the National Security Council and the Justice Department. Nate, I hear you're in the same room as David. I am. Thanks for having me. Extremely here. unusual Culper Partners team meeting in person. <laughs> person. <laughs> Mostly we're just working from home in our pajamas. <laughs> I, I envision you in little bunny slippers. <laughs> Not too far off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And Matthew Hyman is here in the studio with me. No bunny slippers in sight. Uh, Matthew uh, uh, was a, as a senior uh, fellow at the National Security Institute and was formerly with the National Security Division at the Justice Department. Matthew, good to have you here. Great to be here, Stuart. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur in today's <laughs> program. Uh, uh, let's jump in. There's a Big lawsuit, a, a prosecution going on in New York of Joshua Schulte uh, accused of being behind the Vault 7 leaks, of having stolen that information when he worked at the CIA. David, uh, um, the um, arguments have begun. The trial has begun. Uh, what do we know? Uh, well, it's an extremely complicated and interesting case. And Mr. Schulte, obviously presumed innocent, um, is facing some very serious charges. First, around leaking these CIA hacking tools to WikiLeaks uh, in 2016. They were published in 2017. Uh, also, some post-arrest leak-related conduct where he apparently got a secure cell phone into the uh, jail in New York where he was being held, and some other charges have followed from that. And then during a search of his home and some computers there, the feds apparently found a child pornography material. And so he's got some potential liability on that front. Uh, right now, what's being tried, uh, and the trial has just begun last week, uh, are the leaking, and particularly we're focused now on the WikiLeaks charges. And the defense is um, an interesting one. It is essentially that he was, to quote his lawyer, a real pain in the ass around CIA. And nobody liked him, and he got into fights with his co-workers, uh, and he was a difficult sort. And while somebody apparently did leak these uh, hacking tools to WikiLeaks, the defense says it wasn't him, but the government is targeting him because he's such a pain in the ass and difficult sort, but he actually didn't do it. Uh, we will see whether the, uh, the government is able to prove its case. A couple of interesting things uh, for listeners of this podcast emerged on the first day of trial. First, the way the government got access to the material on WikiLeaks was somewhat unusual in my experience. The FBI uh, went out to like Best Buy or some retail establishment and bought a brand new laptop computer and then went to a Starbucks connected to the Wi-Fi at Starbucks and downloaded the WikiLeaks postings, the Vault 7 and, and later the Vault 8 hacking tools that had been 
uh, allegedly stolen and leaked from CIA. So they were, they were essentially treating um, WikiLeaks like China, right? Uh, you only <laughs> you only you only contact them with a burner. Exactly. And, uh, you know, the agent explains that, look, we didn't want to infect any government computer networks. And, uh, um, you know, so they just thought it was a reasonable way to do it. And a little bit to demonstrate also, I suppose, that any Tom, Dick or Harry in the public would be able to do the same thing, showing that, you know, the danger of having these tools out and about. Um, The second um, um, aspect of the case that's notable for listeners of this podcast is that Paul Rosenzweig, uh, was the government's expert witness uh, to explain to the jury what WikiLeaks actually is. And Paul has done some studies and paid attention to WikiLeaks, both from a cyber perspective, uh, but also from a journalistic perspective. And he uh, was actually the government's first witness, testified. He was subjected to some fairly tough cross-examination uh, by Schulte's defense lawyers, Um Paul's not a technical cybersecurity expert. And and there was another funny thing that although the FBI has looked at this material uh, by downloading it (laughs) from Starbucks, Paul, because he has a clearance, has not looked at the material because it's out of scope for him and he doesn't have a need to know. So he did not testify about the contents of Vault 7 or Vault 8. He was really only just trying to explain to the jury what this WikiLeaks organization is and what it does and how it functions. I thought, so, I, and, and he he reminded me of something that somebody at the very beginning of my career said, uh, uh, the guy who's having the most fun in a courtroom at any one time is usually the witness. Uh, <laughs> you, you have more control in an odd way, uh, more ability to shape the case uh, than anybody else. Uh, and it's hard for... Uh, the lawyer doing the cross-examination to do real damage as long as you've been straight. Um, and he, he survived his uh, uh, cross-examination. But I do think uh, it's, it's worth pointing out, David, that you and Paul now share the uh, uh, distinction of having had to say you know, around midnight as you were thinking you were going to fall asleep, Oh my God! What did I say on the Cyber Law podcast that might come back to haunt me in later life? <laughs> Isn't it the truth? And Paul did a, a, a terrific job. He was he was aggressively cross examined, but as you say, he had he had played it straight. He stuck to his knitting. Uh, he knew what he was you know knew, and he didn't pretend to know more than he than he did. I don't know whether he had fun or not. That would be something I may ask him next time I see him, uh, and whether it was worthwhile to undergo uh, all of that that process. But he did seem to contribute to the jury's understanding of the case. Uh, and then I think, I saw something that suggested he had gone off to his uh, vacation home for a little rest. <laughs> I'm guessing this whole thing goes to the jury by the end of this week, uh, don't you I, think? It would, it, you know, the first day seemed to be moving along fairly rapidly, and the judge, of course, went after the uh, prosecutors for wasting 15 minutes at the end of the day because they've got some uh, agency witnesses who I think are going to be testifying a little bit under special procedures so that their identities are not revealed and. That caused some delays with the marshal service and the judge was not happy. So I think there's every reason to believe this thing's going to move expeditiously and the judge is going to crack the whip to push the case through. As I say, the defense is pretty narrow. They acknowledge the leak. They acknowledge the, the, the gravity of the leak. They just say their guy didn't do it. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit like the OJ type of defense, which is, yes, of course, there's a dead body here. But my client is not the one. Somebody else did it. I don't know who. So sounds like a case that could get to the jury pretty rapidly. I'm yes. guessing that they're going to have a CSI defense, right? Uh, um, everybody like hated him, uh, but this is just circumstantial. You, you know, we sh- we want to see the detailed forensics, and if you don't have them, we should be acquitted. I, I, exactly, I that's going to work. No, and there's a lot of people. Uh, they will say, I don't know anything about the actual facts, but they will say that there's a lot of people who had access. They will try to suggest others who had motive and they will say he's being targeted because he was, as they said, a pain in the ass. Let me ask you one more question. I was listening to the Risky Business uh, podcast, free uh, plug, uh, uh, and the host said, uh, you know, we haven't heard from the shadow brokers since Joshua Schulte was arrested. Uh, Is there any possibility he might have just been using a fake Russian (laughs) accent uh, and uh, also releasing stuff uh, uh, through uh, um, the shadow brokers uh, persona? 
what a wonderful theory. You know, I, I, I guess it's one of those things that's going to be hard to disprove uh, unless and until we hear from the same kind of shadow brokers people in the future. And again, he was communicating with the outside world on a secure cell phone, apparently, from jail. So, you know, even if he is convicted, who knows, uh, maybe shadow brokers will be heard from again, and it might even be him. Yes. Okay. All right. So DOD is trying to get its arms around this the cybersecurity issue. And um, they are really trying out, I think it's fair to say, mm-hmm. what a cybersecurity regulatory regime would look like. They, you know, this is DOD's stock and trade is regulating cyber uh, their contractors. Um, and they now have a requirement that you put your plan together and have it audited. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, how is that working, uh, Matthew? Well, it's new. So it's hard to say how it's working right now. Um, I think there's there's been a fair amount of input from the private sector into DOD as they think through the structure mm-hmm. for this process. And I think the private sector is saying it needs a lot more input because I think the rub right now is the DOD is talking about creating a non-profit organization that would do these certifications, um, particularly for smaller contractors. So they so say they tell a, you, you you've done what you need to do. They exactly. go in and check to see. You know, yeah, obviously you certify you did yeah. it, but then nobody's going to just take that. Yeah, you get essentially the way I read the DoD document. Uh, you know, a letter grade or or you're a grade one, grade two, whatever it is. They look at your plans and they say this is what level you are, and then based on that level, you can either bid or not bid for a contract. And the the apprehension being expressed by you know lawyers that advise these companies is, first of all, how do we know that we're going to get consistent grading? Secondly, what's the appeal process if we think you've gotten it fundamentally wrong? And right now, there's no answers to any of that. So all the sort of how's this going to work in practice is a big question mark. Yeah. And by the time they have gone through a process of uh, being uh, certifying and being uh, audited and getting a grade and appealing it, they'll be appealing things like, do you have a six-digit password? Uh, the standards <laughs> are going to fall out of uh, 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 compliance with the times. Yeah, exactly. And and as I understand it, once you get this grade, it's valid for three years and someone made the point just appealing the grade if it's wrong could take you more than three years to rectify it. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done in this space. Well, uh, and it's not like there's a lot of innovation going on in the ransomware uh, in- industry. Uh, uh, <laughs> 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 nice transition, Stuart. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Snake smelled backwards. ECANS uh, manages to combine the worst of uh, industrial control system attacks and ransomware. Yes, it is. It is ransomware, sort of of the usual sort, but with a twist, um, and it targets uh, industrial control systems processes, including several from General Electric, uh, which I gather are in fairly wide use. These are systems that sort of bridge the gap between you know physical processes involving dams or robots in factories or other actual kinetic activities on the one hand and sort of you know connect them through uh, to the internet on the other so you no longer need people standing around pulling levers locally you have a lot more freedom of action to deal with things remotely and you see this in for example SCADA controllers and other kinds of Uh, ways in which uh, fancy electronics and networks are used to control physical things. This ransomware, when it gets in there, it encrypts the data and invites you to, you know, pay for uh, the decryption of that data, just like uh, other kinds of ransomwares. And you even get a free sample up to three megabytes, I think, of data to prove that they can do it, which is nice. Uh, So you're not wasting your money. Uh, But it also specifically shuts down uh, a certain number of processes which are specially associated with these industrial control systems for pipelines and factories and et cetera. Um, so it, it represents a little bit of a new front. It may not be the absolute first time that this has happened, but it's it's one of the first times that you've seen this combination. Um, and the other interesting thing about it is the experts appear to differ on who's behind this. Um, one Israeli firm says it's definitely Iran uh, and looks at various aspects of the code and the email address that's used and other features here to make the connection. Uh, Other private sector observers are less certain and feel that it may be, in fact, not a nation state actor, but just some 
you know, ordinary set of, or, or even maybe extraordinary set of criminals, but not a government that's behind this. Um, it's obviously of grave concern either way, uh, because it does seem to represent a new front. And these these industrial control systems are vulnerable. They actually have kinetic effects in the world. Um, and you wouldn't want them to be, you know, shut down and broken uh, remotely in this way. So yet another reason for concern in the realm of cyber and cyber attacks. So I have one, I, I have a mixed feeling about this. Yes, it's terrible. And, and, and the idea <laughs> of, of, of holding our electric grid hostage for yeah. ransom payments is really bad. At the same time, you know, it, the security of our um, networks, our, our IT networks, is something that uh, when we're told they're secure and then we discover our data on a dark uh, web site, we know that our security has failed. Uh, it's yeah. harder to know when, when somebody with an industrial control system says, don't worry, I got it covered. You have no idea uh, whether that's true or not. And up to now, there hasn't been anything to steal. So there was no likelihood that that the data was going to tell you by uh, being disclosed that you'd had a breach of somebody that you were relying on. Ransomware at least means that if somebody's running a really bad security system for their industrial controls, we're going to find out about it. Stuart, that is the kind of optimistic silver lining thinking that I yeah. really appreciate in you. So this is like crowdsourcing the red teaming exercise with a financial motive, and that'll help ferret out the weak animals from the herd here in the ICS area. That's that that is a that is an optimistic uh, uh, turn on this, and you may be right. Um, but the cost of getting that information is potentially going to be pretty high, I think. Not as high as it was in Iowa. Good <laughs> God. <laughs> Another <Okay>. good transition. <laughs> I don't want to dwell on this, uh, but because uh, it was a, just a disaster in all respects uh, and probably the end of the Iowa caucuses. Uh, um, it, but are there lessons to be learned for uh, uh, election security or IT security, Nate? Yeah, I mean, you know, this does raise, uh, unfortunately, for the National Democratic Party and the Democratic Party of Iowa, big questions about their own competence. Um, you know, after all, this did not seem to be a particularly complicated or sophisticated application that they were tasked with developing, um, or at, at least that their outside consultant was tasked with developing, and it seemed to fail utterly. I mean, I think one of the big things that has actually been talked a lot about um, in the wake of this fiasco is that it's not enough to simply protect the integrity of the vote itself. Um, that another key component of a functioning democracy is is the public's confidence in the result, and I think, you know, to a degree, we've seen that shaken here, um, and it's a, an important reminder that public confidence in a democracy is is really everything, and you know, I think that you know people are going to have to sit down and do some hard thinking about how what role technology can play in elections. And that includes how it can be leveraged to maintain or sustain public confidence in in the results of elections. Well, yeah, I I, I have to say that uh, I was teasing one of my Democratic friends. I came in uh, uh, while the uh, count was still in doubt, and I said, uh, "You know, if it lasts another twelve hours, I think Hillary's going to win." <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> So I, what I was struck by is this was not so much a failure of the app. There were some problems there, but it was mostly a failure of kind of a, a failure to understand exactly how it was going to be used and to have uh, rubbed out the problems just by doing play in the joint, right? People were supposed to download the app and they, they had been sent to rooms where they were told they couldn't bring their phones. So it's kind of hard to download the app. Uh, I, and uh, and then they, they weren't ready for all the phone calls they got and they certainly read, weren't ready for 4chan to DDoS them. Uh, um, so there were a lot of 
small things that added up to just a, a, a giant disaster. And that, you know, because they were concerned about the security of the app and they weren't sure that it could be completely vetted, which is fair, uh, and they knew they'd get a lot of attention, they kept it secret. Uh, so people didn't get to play with it. They didn't get to see how it worked. Uh, and so you had a lot of folks uh, who had never seen it and then were trying to use it. So, yeah, yeah it's it, it it was a series of small mistakes uh, that added up to disaster. Uh, and there is a lesson of sorts in that. Yeah. And I think, you know, a little bit has been made of their unwillingness to to take advantage of CISA's offer to to test the, the app for security. And, you know, to me, that critique, um, you know, despite all of the, the valid critiques out there, that one seems a little bit misplaced. This wasn't really... Um, by all accounts, a, a security issue. So it's it, that to me just is a little bit misguided, and and there it's important to focus on the things that are are valid critiques and figure out how to learn from those things. How plausible would it have been to tell all those Bernie Bros that of course it's working right? You had the Trump administration check the security. You just helped us, right? <laughs> yeah. That'll bolster confidence. <laughs> the FCC is going to sue a, a, at least one, maybe more, uh, uh, telco for selling phone location data. Uh, uh, Nate, uh, we don't know much about who they're planning to sue or on what theory. It's just that they sold location data, data to the wrong party. Is that pretty much what we've learned? Yeah. I mean, we've we've heard complaints previously about uh, Verizon, AT, AT&T, T-Mobile, and Sprint in this space. You're right. It does seem like the FCC is, is poised to take some action here against at least one of them. The telephone companies themselves have been saying um, that there's nothing to see here. Everything we've done is legal. Um, you know, they seem to be relying on some level on some sort of consent-based theory, most likely, and, um, you know, it's, it's a legal test that um, does provide a little bit of flexibility, but um, quite frankly, isn't particularly well defined in some of these contexts. So I think this will be an interesting thing uh, to watch going forward if, if that is the place where the rubber meets the road on this kind of enforcement action. And uh, among other things, to to see what other dominoes fall, depending on where that shakes out, because it's a it's a theory that a lot of um, technology companies use for a lot of reasons. And uh, the definition of consent uh, and the level of consent that's required is is going to be very interesting to see play out. Yeah, the FCC has been criticized for taking its time uh, to uh, uh, actually take action here. But my guess is they were sifting through these cases looking for one yeah. where they were pretty sure they could win because uh, uh, not all of them are, are easily won. Um, all right. Uh, Matthew, uh, uh, ransomware comes, from the, comes for the lawyers. Yes, it does uh, because uh – who's the famous bank robber said, because that's where the money is. I mean, that's where the information is, particularly the sensitive information. And uh, in this story, as I I read the media reports, the law firms seem to be relatively small. We're not talking about major international firms. Uh, But I think it's just a reminder that uh, when you entrust information to a third party, whether it's your lawyer, your accountant, you create create a vulnerability for yourself to the extent that they don't take – cybersecurity very seriously to the extent that they don't train their people. Uh, and so I would expect that this is the beginning of a trend. We're just going to see more of this. This will become routine to the point where I don't think it'll be reported on very much. Uh, but it is just a reminder. Oh, I don't know. Because, you know, the the, the, the newest uh, game in ransomware is first you encrypt it, but yeah. only after you've made a copy that you can then release so that the pain just never ends. Even for somebody who's got good backups, uh, all their clients' data on the street is, is worse than having to admit that you lost the data to a ransomware attack. Yeah, I just uh, my fear is this is going to become a dog bites man story, and that it, it, it because it's low hanging fruit. There are lots of small operators out there that can't invest, and and you know, and to be fair, there's lots of large operators that fall victim to phishing attacks. This was not a sophisticated uh, attack. It was the way most people are able to get into other systems, and um, I, I just think it's going to become more and more common. So it it was I, I saw. Three relatively small South Dakota yes. firms. Uh, 
you know, this reminded me of all of the Texas school districts mm-hmm. that were compromised at the same time with ransomware. And I suspect when we dig the into Baltimore this- Baltimore city government as well. We're going to find a, um, a managed service provider who they all shared and who was the vector for the attack. We'll see. But uh, that's my guess. Yeah, it, it, that wouldn't surprise me. I just think it's also a reminder, too, of the particular vulnerability that law firms have. I mean, very different circumstance with the Panama Papers because that was an insider that leaked it. But when you have these repositories of sensitive private information, those are target number one for opportunists and bad guys. And I think you need to think carefully about what do my accountants have? What do my lawyers have? What do my doctors have? Uh, because that that gives them leverage to extract money from you. All right. That's uh, that's cheery, uh, seeing as how we're both in the business of practicing law. Um, there's a, a story that suggests that Google and Facebook, which were building a cable all the way to China, Hong Kong, uh, have decided to stop short in the Philippines. Uh, and uh, uh, the... The reason seems to be Team Telecom objections. Uh, Team Telecom, of course, is the U.S. government's uh, um, telecom licensing advisory uh, service. Uh, they they tell the FCC whether a particular cable landing license ought to be granted. They put conditions on it. Uh, and it sounds like they put so many conditions on the license to all to end in China that either the Chinese or the Hong Kong governments or the users at that end to finally balk. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that is what appears to have happened here. Uh, Team Telecom operates in a way not entirely dissimilar from the CFIUS process. So it's a multi-agency process that kind of weighs in and gives advice from a national security perspective. I think Team Telecom, there's there's probably maybe less daylight on that process than there is in the CFIUS process. Um, but yeah, it appears that you know Google and Facebook were running these cables to three places, the Philippines, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and they basically have just given up on the Hong Kong connection. Uh, and you know the, the media reports talk about this is just not the time to try and run undersea cables to China. Yeah. So the great decoupling now has a physical decoupling. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And, uh, you know, they they say the worst headline you can run in uh, uh, a newspaper is worthwhile Canadian initiative. But surely the second worst is responsible report on Russian interference from the intelligence, uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, This is the third one that they've released, Nate. And uh, um, by all accounts, it's sober, it's thoughtful, it uh, shares criticism of all the parties, and it's getting almost no coverage. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate from my perspective because, you know, in some ways, I think it's one of the more valuable ones. The The previous two had a, had some, you know, uh, I guess in the media's eyes, more newsworthy aspects to them, um, you know, conflicting with some things that the president has said and, and other things that um, warranted some attention. But this one really focused on the government response to the election interference in 2016. And I think in a lot of ways, rightly critical of the Obama administration's handling of of the incident. Um, you know, there were there were four things that really stuck out to me that are either still um, problems or or simply very difficult to to handle and overcome in this space. The first is that to the extent the plans or motives or intentions of the adversary in in cyber uh, intrusions or other cyber attacks matter when it comes to your um, your response it's they tend to understanding that motive can be complicated and difficult and often lags behind um, things like attribution and can slow the response time um, the second thing is is the two things that the Obama administration was particularly worried about and tempered their response in 2016 were uh, concerns that it would impact the ongoing election and the political process. Um, And that, to me, um, you know, while warranted to some degree, you know, particularly in light of the the Justice Department's decision last week to, to require any 
um, investigations of candidates for office or their staff to be approved by the attorney general himself, a political official. You know, one of the concerns here is that the pendulum may swing too far back in the other direction um, over concerns about some limited aspects of the FBI's investigation. Um, we can't lose sight of, of the significance of potential interference or compromises in this campaigns, particularly presidential campaigns. And I'm a little bit concerned that we are um, uh, overcorrecting for that and repeating some of the same errors of, of the Obama administration. And their second concern was about escalation. Um, and this is something that um, we just haven't, I think, as a country gotten a handle on how best to respond and and how best to deter some of these actions, particularly in the election interference space and disinformation space. Um, we're going around playing whack-a-mole. And I think, you know, um, it's, it, it behooves us to find other ways to deter some of this activity from taking place in in the first instance. And and finally, the the thing that, that I think has been um, a persistent problem over the years with handling of cyber incidents like this in the government is um, siloing and the lack of integration of other components of the government. Um, you know, I know from my time at the National Security Council, the cyber work was was largely deferred to the cyber directorate, um, with only a couple of limited uh, exceptions. And what we saw here, uh, again, in the Obama administration's response was an over-reliance on the cybersecurity experts and uh, an inability to integrate other components of government that might have been um, needed to understand the plans and motivations of the Russian government to think through other non-cyber um, options for how to respond and and um, disrupt or, or deter this kind of activity. And so the cyber responses really do, in, in my opinion, require sort of a whole of government um, view and a, a whole of government response. And, uh, you know, it it's uh, a little bit risky to to rely on on a single component of the government for for all of that work and you know here again part of my concern is that with the breakdown in the in the policy process of of the Trump administration and the dysfunction at the National Security Council um, it doesn't feel like this is an area where we've gotten better if anything it, it, I fear that we may have actually gotten worse so I, I I did some thinking about this about a year ago, um, thinking about uh, unthinkable options. Uh, I, I called yeah. this the 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 iceberg project because it was unthinkable. Um, <laughs> a, a, and uh, uh, one of the insights, that maybe the only insight that came out of that, was that uh, uh, if we want to have options other than cyber, we need kinetic options that are similar to cyber attacks, like. Uh, Really embarrassing, uh, but not fatal, or um, uh, really serious, serious, but something that you can undo before the serious consequences fully uh, are felt. Uh, now, you know, it's easy to say, hard to, to come up with, but one of the ideas that I had is uh, we've got all these smart torpedoes, right? Uh, and we've got really strong materials. Uh, why wouldn't it be possible? to use a uh, smart autonomous torpedo with a lot of uh, uh, unbreakable uh, 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 material that it's dragging behind it to foul the propeller of uh, you know the the only two functioning um, uh, seagoing uh, warships the Russians have so they can wallow out there in the sea and get covered by uh, helicopter flights uh, uh, for a week or two as a, a retaliation for them having carried out an attack on our uh, uh, election infrastructure. Uh, you don't start World War III over that. You kind of 
pretty pissed and really embarrassed. Uh, but it's a it's a lesson that we have ways of escalating that don't just say, well, we'll do it to you. And they say, yeah, go ahead and interfere with our elections. Uh, good luck with that. Um, uh, that's one of the, uh, uh, the ways of thinking about it, which is it says we need a a weapons program that is aimed at finding intermediate responses to cyber yeah. attacks. You know, I remember you mentioning that you were working on that project. Um, you know, uh, I guess at a high level, I, I agree with you and, and like your direction. I hadn't realized that it had gone that far into the weeds or, or I guess that deep into the water. Um, but um, but I, I applaud you for, for I think getting you creative. Put a real iceberg in the path of the relationships <laughs> and see how they react to that. <laughs> you certainly are right. When you do the net assessment looking for relative strengths and weaknesses and vulnerabilities, I think the Russian elections are probably less vulnerable than our own. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do quick hits uh, and wrap this up. Uh, uh, stories that we've covered already. A Brazilian judge has said Glenn Greenwald is not going to face charges, at least right now. Uh, so uh, he was, it was, the charges were uh, off again, on again, off again. Uh, uh, Clearview AI, which is the poster child for the moral panic we're all living through over uh, artificial intelligence using, uh, doing face recognition, uh, continues to acquire enemies. Uh, Google and Facebook are bringing cease and desist actions against Clearview, which probably did train its AI on uh, Google, uh, on YouTube and Facebook. Um, uh, so their legal troubles have not ended. Uh, uh, Facebook and the encryption fight is Back uh, this time uh, without the government to play the uh, uh, the role of uh, heavy, uh, instead uh, 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 child welfare activists who are worried about uh, sex trafficking and child porn uh, are saying that uh, shifting over to end and end end to end encryption uh, will uh, uh, lead to an increase in distribution of that stuff, and they've asked Facebook not to do it. Salesforce uh, has um, been hit with one of the first lawsuits under California's CCPA. Uh, watch that space. They didn't ask for a lot of damages, but uh, that's because they've got plenty of time to ask for damages. Uh, and uh, just as a, uh, a quick tour of uh, what uh, Silicon Valley uh, uh, lefty uh, millennials are doing to the right, uh, uh, black libertarian uh, film critic says that Letterboxd uh, just dropped and uh, uh, memory holds 500 uh, reviews that he had done of uh, uh, films from a libertarian point of view. Uh, uh, James O'Keefe um, released a um, tape uh, indicating that one of the Bernie bros that he interviewed undercover had uh, uh, said something nice about gulags for the right and uh, uh, threatened uh, 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 you know, serious violence if uh, Bernie didn't win. Uh, uh, and then uh, uh, James O'Keefe gave the name of the guy as somebody who was part of the uh, uh, Sanders campaign. Uh, Twitter said, you can't release people's private information like their names. And they have banned uh, uh, O'Keefe's uh, Twitter account. And uh, uh, they also banned Zero Hedge, which is a very frequently cited uh, but sort of uh, fringy uh, 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 site. Uh, it's got conspiracy theories on it. And uh, one of the conspiracy theories is that maybe there's something funny about the uh, Wuhan uh, coronavirus that might suggest that it came from a Wuhan uh, uh, lab. Uh, and uh, they uh, also said, uh, well, here's the name of the guy who runs the lab that we suspect uh, somebody ought to go ask him. Uh, oh, Twitter said, that's that's private information. No, you can't do that. So he's banned too. Uh, so that's uh, uh, that's just one week and uh, 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 using uh, the rules of the uh, uh, social media platforms uh, in ways that the, the, the right thinks are discriminatory. Now, let's go to our interview because it's a really good one. 
All right, let's turn to our interview. Uh, uh, this week, we're talking to Peter Swire, who is the Elizabeth and Tommy Holder Chair and Professor of Law and Ethics at Georgia Tech. Uh, uh, we're going to be talking to him about a subject on which he really is expert, which is the sh- the, the the ball of issues uh, uh, under the heading Shrems, uh, uh, which may yet disrupt all of U.S. national security intelligence programs and uh, the transfer of data across the Atlantic. So it's a big deal. It's all wrapped up in legal complexity that uh, I hope Peter will uh, unpack. And to help him unpack and to provide many of the questions uh, is uh, one of our favorites, uh, Maury Schenk, who's an advisor to Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues. Uh, I am going to uh, uh, occasionally intrude with uh, uh, irresponsible questions and suggestions. Uh, So, uh, uh, Maury, do you want to kick it off with a couple of questions and uh, let Peter talk about uh, uh, how we got to the situation we're in today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thanks, Stuart. Happy to be questioning today. And I know Peter knows a lot more about this than I do. So I'm really looking forward to hear what he has to say. Uh, This we're talking about it today because um, a few weeks ago, uh, one of the advocates general of the European Court of Justice, Henrik Salkmansgard, uh, I think I pronounced his name correctly. I actually researched that with a former girlfriend from Norway called a Danish friend, and I think I've got it basically right. Um, wrote an opinion in what's called the Schrems 2 case. There was a Schrems 1 case, and they were both initiated by a guy called Max Schrems, uh, an Austrian privacy activist, uh, sort of the Greta Thunberg of the uh, transatlantic privacy world, not quite as famous as Greta. Uh, Peter, maybe you could start with some background on what has who Max Schrems is, what happened in the Schrems 1 case, how we got here. Sure. Thanks. And glad to be here, Maury and Stuart. Um, so the Schrems 1 case came after a negotiation in 2000 between the European Union and the United States that created the so-called safe harbor. And uh, that was negotiated in 2000. I was the White House privacy guy in those days. And the basic idea of Safe Harbor was to find a way to solve the problem where Europe has stricter privacy laws and a lot of the rest of the world hadn't had as strict privacy laws. And the European laws said, if you're going to ship data from Europe to somewhere like the United States, you have to keep adequate protections of privacy when it goes to the United States. And in in the Safe Harbor, the first round of this, the companies that signed up for Safe Harbor, that raised their hand and volunteered for Safe Harbor, could follow the more or less European standards of the private, of the uh, uh, safe harbor. And when they did that, then they could ship data from Europe to the United States. So even if it was about a French person in France, they could ship the data to the United States under safe harbor if they were a safe harbor company. Um, Max Schrems uh, got a bee in his bonnet that the European privacy laws were not being uh, uh, protected well enough. And there's you can look online for various stories about how he got started at it. But the basic point at the time was he was – a, a young person fairly soon out of law school, and he decided to be the activist to make the European law follow what the European law said. I think that's the way he would see it. Others would see it as he was on some kind of crusade against American-based tech companies. But for whatever it is, he invoked European law. And the European law challenge was that safe harbor wasn't good enough because Max wanted to get access to his records of personal data. And specifically, and oddly enough, he wanted to get access to the records of the NSA so that he could see whether they were processing his data appropriately. Now, having access to some other country's intelligence service is unimaginable in most circumstances. But under the European privacy rules, it looks like his data should not be able to leave Europe unless it's adequately protected. And that includes against perhaps unlawful in the European lies uh, uh, processing in the NSA. So he brought the case in Ireland, and this happened right in the wake of Snowden. And Facebook, who was the company sued, and the United States government thought it wasn't that serious. They did not challenge the facts in court in Ireland. And it went up to the European Court of Justice. And lo and behold, the European Court of Justice basically assumed the worst about the facts, said that the United States surveillance state has indiscriminate surveillance with no limits in law, which is not true, but that's what they said. And uh, they said, therefore, the safe harbor is not adequate. Now, 
the technical legal ruling under safe harbor with some other things about the jobs of the privacy regulators, but everyone knew that it was really about the NSA does too much surveillance in the eyes of the Europeans. So safe harbor blew up. It was gone. The Court of Justice, the European Union said under its fundamental rights jurisprudence, no more safe harbor. And subsequent to that, the United States and the European Commission negotiated round two. They negotiated something called the privacy shield. And that negotiation was put in place. There were various stepped up safeguards and privacy shield went into effect. So the companies that used to use safe harbor could use privacy shield. And that's in place today. Well, Max Schrems went back to Ireland and said to the, the regulator in Ireland, hey, regulator, we still have these problems. There's too much surveillance in the United States. The regulator at the first level said she found that to be a well-founded complaint. He didn't have his access rights. And that led to a trial in the high court in Ireland. And I was actually chosen by Facebook as an independent uh, expert on U.S. law for that. Uh, it's, it's a nice kind of expert witness to be in Ireland. Once they hire you, they can't talk to you again. Um, and in, in any event, um, uh, I submitted over 300 pages of testimony to the Irish court explaining U.S. surveillance law, explaining the many safeguards that are in place, explaining in many ways that the U.S. system of safeguards far exceeds what Europe has had. And so there was the trial. And at the end of the trial, um, without citing a lot of the record, the judge basically said she agreed with the regulator and she thought it was a well-founded complaint. And next stop was the European Court of Justice. And so last summer, the European Court of Justice had its oral arguments. And in December, and that's the, that's the case we're talking about today, in December, um, we got what's called an advocate general's opinion. Think of that almost as like a glorified clerk's bench memo that explains from the view of this one expert advocate general how to look at the case. And in many, many cases, it's a good clue to how the court is going to think. That advocate general detailed opinion came out on December 19th, a few months ago. And uh, it basically came to some conclusions about the case. When the safe harbor was overturned, a lot of our clients were asking us what to do. And the obvious solution was standard contractual clauses. Um, and, you know, it would be good to have you tell us what those are. And, and the other solution was the privacy shield, sure. um, which came in later. And Facebook appears to have done both of them. They appeared to have signed yeah. up for the standard contractual clauses quickly after the safe harbor was invalidated and then also registered for more limited purposes for the privacy shield. So they're mainly relying on on the standard contractual clauses, as I, as I understand it, and the ECJ case is about the standard contractual clauses. But uh, the Advocate General had quite a lot to say um, about the privacy shield, although he said the court didn't need to reach it. Maybe you could unpack that, right. you know, the dynamic of the standard contractual clauses and privacy sure. shield. Okay, so, so this goes back to the idea that there's data in Europe under the strict privacy laws, which is now GDPR, it used to be the Data Protection Directive. And when it goes from Europe, it has to have adequate protections, which the court has now said means essentially equivalent protections to what it would have in Europe. And by far the most important commercial way of shipping data from Europe to other places are these standard contractual clauses. And that basically means that a, a corporate entity in Europe, like Facebook Ireland, writes a contract with a corporate entity outside of Europe, like Facebook in the United States. And the contract promises to be good boys and girls to follow the rules of European law with the data that leaves Europe. Um, and I've seen estimates that over 90% of the transfers out of Europe happen under these SCCs, these standard contractual clauses. Uh, meanwhile, uh, other companies, sometimes smaller companies, have continued to use the privacy shield. And there was another case moving up the court chain in a, a different part of the European legal system. It was basically at the trial court level for the European Court of Justice. And that was a French group, Le Quadrature du Net, that was challenging Privacy Shield. So at the same time, the contract case is coming over from Ireland. The Privacy Shield case is bubbling up from below uh, within the European Court of Justice system. And uh, for the oral argument, they decided the court, at least in some ways, seemed to decide to combine the cases. And so they heard argument on both contract clauses, are there enough protections, and privacy shield, are there enough protections? So that's how we, we had the case at the European Court of Justice. There were very broad questions certified to the European Court of Justice on lots of different issues of European law. But the, but the big story comes down to, is there essential equivalence? Is, the, is there a good enough protection? And the focus of the equivalence, again, is whether this individual's right, Max Schrems's right, whether the individual's right is being protected 
when data goes to the U.S. in a company, and then the NSA can use its authorities to look at the data. And that's Section 702, et cetera. I do think that there's kind of a fundamental issue here that that um, uh, shapes the entire case, which is that uh, it's almost impossible uh, that U.S. law would recapitulate European law on on privacy with respect to privacy against the state. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, for you know, my in my view, we have much tougher standards on privacy. I agree, uh, but uh, uh, they're not the same uh, as European standards, and there is simply no way in which a private company, uh, whether they're doing uh, uh, binding uh, uh, corporate rules or uh, 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 signing up for the uh, privacy shield, can say uh, U.S. law with respect to intelligence won't be effectuated. Uh, uh, We refuse to honor U.S. law. Um, And so given those two facts, uh, it's highly unlikely that U.S. Uh, transfers, transfers to the United States will survive this scrutiny. And I would argue that the the original sin here was the court assuming, contrary to all the evidence, that uh, uh, the intent of the adequacy standard uh, uh, in this context was to impose restrictions on the intelligence activities of other countries. Uh, 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 that really wasn't at all obvious in the 90s when uh, uh, the uh, predecessor of GDPR was adopted. Uh, it's something that's been largely invented uh, in the last uh, five or ten years and mostly by the courts. Uh, and when they add that to their demand that uh, uh, U.S. law look pretty much exactly like uh, uh, European law, um, it's almost inevitable that we're going to have a, a, a train wreck here. Well, I, I, I agree about the train wreck, and I've spent a lot of years trying to to see if there's ways to avoid it. Um, look, after the Snowden revelations happened, there was a lot of anger in Europe. The GDPR proposal was dead in the water in the European Parliament. And within months after Snowden started his revelations, they passed GDPR. So there's a straight line from the Snowden revelations to GDPR. And there's a straight line from the Snowden revelations to the courts sort of expressing their anger at U.S. Uh, national security intelligence surveillance. So that's, that's some backdrop. You know, that's the sort of legal realist look at what's going on in the courts. I, I agree that, that the, the analysis is incoherent in a whole bunch of ways. One of the biggest ways is they're scrutinizing the U.S., uh, flows of data, uh, flows of data to the U.S. and have not had anything like the same level of scrutiny when large data flows go to China. There's lots of uh, uh, there's lots of these businesses that are sending data to China, and last year in the summer we documented in my in my scholarship the utter lack of controls on government surveillance in China. There's no rule of law. Companies get told to turn this stuff over and they have to turn this stuff over. So the US you know, gets a 9.7 out of 10 on the scale of protections and China gets a zero. But one of the consequences of this case is we could see China transfers still being allowed, but no transfers to the US because of these nitpicks about the NSA protections. And, and that actually got argued in the in the court of justice. And I had an article in Le Monde last summer making those points. So there's a growing awareness in Europe of this incoherence and about how they're going to cut themselves off from the rest of the world. But the judges haven't figured out a way to save themselves from that. The, the China points are very, a very good one. But it seems to me there's the, the advocate general said the relevant comparator here is what the national security law would be in EU member states and under EU law, but member states in particular. Mm-hmm. And you even look at EU member states like Italy, which has you know some of the most wiretaps in the world, or the UK where I'm based, where you can get communications data with a very low standard, really lower than much lower than in the United States. And there's no scrutiny of that either. Well, there, so so the. One of the standard American complaints here, which I have a lot of sympathy for, is a hypocrisy that they're criticizing the U.S. for practices that are better than their own practices. What the European lawyers say to that is, under their constitution, under their charter of fundamental rights, what's relevant is not how bad the member states are. What's relevant is what the legal standard is under the constitution. And so they say they don't care if Italy has bad 
uh, uh, things. That's to be solved within the European Union. But when the data leaves the European Union, then it has this scrutiny. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying that's what the lawyers in Europe say. The standard is what their fundamental rights documents require. And they've, they, there's a sort of rigor and lack of flexibility in the factual assessments that I think the court in Luxembourg, the European Court of Justice, has shown. Yeah, there's a, there's a, uh, a counterpart argument from it's about 250 years old that uh, um, the fact that uh, the English aren't paying a tea tax doesn't mean that the Americans are free from paying a tea tax. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, uh, it's it's th- th- this really is a remarkable situation in which the um, uh, European Court of Justice is imposing uh, a whole set of laws more or less, you know, uh, in hike verba, the, the word for word, yes. uh, uh, on the United States. The last time somebody told us what our law had to be in some foreign country was about 1776. <laughs> well, I, I, I do think, you know, I think one way for an American lawyer to get some understanding of what's going on here is to think about U.S. First Amendment jurisprudence. And so when the Europeans say, hey, the U.S. should have a hate law or U.S. should have you know, right to be forgotten, the answer is, sorry, we've got these judges. These judges have their doctrine. We have the First Amendment and Congress can't change that. And that's what's going on with privacy in the European Union. So um, when the court says this, I've, I've asked a number of European experts, what would it take to overrule it? There is no amendment process for the Charter of Fundamental Rights. They would have to renegotiate the Treaty of Lisbon, which is the fundamental basis of their entire constitutional order. They say that's unimaginable. So when when the court gets out front of reality, there is no amendment process. There's no parliament overruling it process. There's no commission telling them the wrong process. We're going to have a Marbury versus Madison moment if they go too far, where the other institutions will just say, we're not going to do it. You don't have the soldiers. But that's that hasn't happened yet. And the court is pushing up against the limits of what a court can do, but there's no limits within the law of what the court can do here. So unless we want to change how we gather intelligence uh, and uh, get rid of programs that have been crucial for uh, fighting terrorism in the United States, uh, we're going to have to find a way to uh, up the ante sufficiently to persuade uh, uh, Europeans either not to uh, adhere to what their courts are saying or to persuade the courts to rethink what they've done. Do you have suggestions? <laughs> well, I found myself asking what uh, even persuaded, apart from persuading the Europeans to change their approach, what if the ECJ ruled exactly along the lines of these advocate, uh, the advocate general opinion? What would be the options? Mm-hmm. And you know, he said uphold the standard contractual clauses in a way where national data protection authorities would probably invalidate a lot of transfers to the United States. And then what do you do? Do binding corporate rules survive? Clearly, uh, the derogations under GDPR Article 49, like consent and a contract with the data subject, would still work. Have you thought about what would happen as a practical matter? If you take the Advocate General's opinion as the final opinion and try to figure out what that would mean in practice, there, there, there there are European lawyers who are trying to find ways to make things survive. So one of them goes like this. The adequacy decision for the for the um, privacy shield would go down because there's no real way to um, uh, say the U.S. system does this kind of access for Max Schrems to his NSA records. On the other hand, for con- for standard contract clauses and binding corporate rules, there's a different mechanism. The mechanism is uh, that a company signs the contract clauses. It's subject to the supervision of, let's say, the Irish supervisor. And they then make a case-by-case determination of whether it's a a violation. And for lots of American companies, there's no NSA surveillance at scale. You know, lots of manufacturing companies with employee records in Europe, they're not going to see the NSA all the time under Section 702. They don't do that kind of thing. And so you could imagine case-by-case where the large providers get hammered with this because they are subject to NSA programs like 702 in a regular course, but that you know 90-something percent of American companies would not be barred from using contracts. And, and so that, that, that's, a, that's a situation actually close to what Max Schrems asked for initially, which he's, he wanted Facebook and Microsoft and Google and those companies to get hammered, and he didn't want to disrupt everything else. He's, he said that. Now, 
he may, the, the advocate general's opinion actually could lead to uh, a regime where most companies would not get their contracts struck down. It does seem as though somehow um, like a magician's trick, we've gone from the uh, fundamental law of the uh, uh, European Union to incorporating into that fundamental law every jot and tittle of GDPR, yes. which, which yes. makes no sense uh, unless you say this is all required by uh, um, uh, the, the, the uh, fundamental law. Yeah, but the the thing the thing the Europeans would say is this isn't just every aspect of it. This goes to basic individual rights to have some control over their data, to have access to their data, to have a data protection authority protect uh, the the data. And so th this, in the European view, is basic due process as it comes to privacy. It's not saying your privacy data protection impact assessments were done improperly. It's that something at the core of individual rights is being frustrated. Again, I'm not saying this is my view, but this is the way the courts in Europe seem to be taking it. It does seem to me that, that if we want to solve this problem, the lawyers have some role here, but the fact is that mm -hmm. if you apply the law as it's been articulated by the European Court of Justice, uh, um, the U.S. is going to lose this case. U.S. companies are going to lose this case. It's going to massive, uh, uh, massively disrupt uh, both our intelligence programs and our international trade. So if you want to restore things to the status quo in, say, uh, a 2000 or 2005, you really have to yeah. create a massive crisis and then offer <laughs> a fig leaf of uh, uh, yeah. uh, 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 compliance, a situation in which everybody in Europe is, is notified that when their data goes to the United States, it's subject to uh, intelligence processing, and they thereby consent if they give their data to people who, use, uh, who send it to the United States. And just say, well, so consent mm -hmm. is it, and, and we've got consent from everybody. Here's, a, here's my favorite fig leaf, which is the Europeans, when they say this, they say they want to have some independent agency look at the review. They want to have somebody be the lawyer for the person asking for it. They want a judicial role. And so, so we can actually do that without wrecking the American system of government. So the independent agency that's obvious here is the PCLOB, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. They're independent agency. And they could look at a particular complaint if Max Schrems has a complaint. The PCLOB people have the clearances. It would take a statutory fix, but they're supposed to be oversight of, of NSA anyway, so that you let them do oversight of this. No, but they, they, they're not going to be able to handle 10 complaints, let alone 400. Yeah, but the number right now in history is one. There's been no complaints. <laughs> oh, I the, guarantee been no you. Complaints I, Glenn, to, Glenn to Greenwald will be, will be filing his. Uh, uh, there are hundreds of ideologically motivated people who will be delighted to, well, to fill you know, up the that's true, then If that's true, then they, you know, then you handle the... I, I think that the, the idea of overload, and, and you know, Maury may have experience about individual subject access rights in Europe, but you know there are some of them, and um, but but I, but I'm not I'm not convinced there's going to be this flood of access requests. So uh, let me suggest a, a ways of creating uh, the crisis that I think we're going to need. Uh, we've got full legal authority in the United States right now. The Trump administration, without going to Congress, has authority to say um, this is an uh, the the European uh, Union is in the process of cutting off trade in data. Uh, across the Atlantic. Uh, that is a trade barrier. Uh, uh, it's been recognized as such. It's only allowed in the name of privacy uh, where you are, where it's uh, uh, reasonable and not arbitrary and not discriminatory. Uh, uh, we think it's clearly discriminatory. We haven't seen anything uh, uh, like these rules applied to China. And in any mm -hmm. event, it's not justifiable in, in light of the comedy that uh, uh, nations owe each other with respect to their own individual senses of what is appropriate uh, civil liberties protection uh, and uh, they are use, they are enforcing it with the threat of fines up to four percent of gross uh, uh, revenue so what we're going to do is impose uh, uh, sanctions and our sanctions are going to include the imposition of uh, penalties of up to four percent of gross revenue on any European country company that depends on data, which would include every single European <laughs> uh, automobile manufacturer. 
because uh, mm-hmm. if you want to get uh, Germany's attention, you just have to uh, hold a gun to the head of their automobile industry. Uh, and uh, you go through that uh, and, and, and say, we're taking that money, we're putting it in a fund to reimburse our companies in case they get threatened with this uh, you know, as an attempt to uh, uh, hold uh, our intelligence operations uh, hostage. And then you deny visas to every single uh, member of the European Court of Justice. Uh, and uh, uh, begin twisting the knife uh, uh, as a way of demonstrating just how pissed we are. Uh, you know, the European Commission is already kind of changing sides on this. They just want this to go away because because they realize they've lost control of it. They only wanted it when they could titrate the amount of pain they caused, and now they can't. Um, so it does seem to me that. Um, we do have options uh, here, and they are uh, almost as unthinkable as having the European Court of Justice sit in judgment on U.S. intelligence and counterterrorism law. Well, I, I, you know, so the idea of denying visas sounds a lot like uh, the sanctions after Crimea, where you went after Putin and his henchmen, and you're basically calling the European Court of Justice the equivalence. I think that's a yeah, well, well, they're equally anti-democratic. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> one I hadn't heard. It, it, the lack of comity, c o m i t y, is remarkable. So when when the European courts look at their own countries for national security purposes, they give them what their doctrine calls a margin of appreciation. But when they look at the U.S. national security, they give no margin of appreciation, and they ought to give more because we're not part of their system, and you have to have comity. And then I do think the trade argument. Anytime there's going to be flows to China and not the U.S., based on an argument that the U.S. does too much surveillance, I just think the trade argument gets stronger and stronger and stronger. I wonder if there's, there isn't a completely different play. The Europeans keep keep complaining that we won't talk to them to make a common front against uh, China. Maybe we should make a common front with China, which has no interest in having its data flows cut off. And uh, and, and the two of us will, will, will kick Brussels around. The wow. Room. <laughs> I love I love You never know where these podcast discussions you just, are going to go. You just okay. don't. You just don't. Uh, okay. Peter, this has been terrific. This is a, a great wake-up call, I hope, for policymakers in the United States who, who – inexplicably have tried to whistle past this graveyard for years. Uh, um, uh, the the ghosts are coming out of the or the zombies are coming out of the ground now. Uh, there's no way we can whistle past this. Uh, uh, and I uh, really do appreciate your clarifying um, uh, and your decade of work in an effort to head off this crisis. Okay. Well, it'll be, a, it'll be very uh, interesting to see um, what the blow up looks like if and when it comes. And then we will have to put it together somehow after that. But this is a mess waiting to happen. I'm looking forward to it. You know, this is this is what we always did uh, when we uh, worked uh, uh, in government. Uh, uh, you know, I would blow it up and you would patch it up. Uh, uh, Maury, thank you for uh, for getting us through that uh, as uh, efficiently and civilly as possible. Uh, I want to thank also uh, uh, David Chris, Nate Jones, and Matthew Hyman for joining me in the News Roundup. Uh, this has been episode 299. We're going to have to have a celebration for the next one of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget, send questions and comments to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If you suggest a guest, we'll give you one of our highly coveted mugs. Uh, please go on and rate the show. Uh, uh, leave us a uh, uh, comments in uh, your favorite uh, podcast aggregator uh, and uh, join us again uh, next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 